0: Well, the first Sunday of December, there was freezing rain, you may or may not recall, and we didn't have a service that Sunday. I was intending on finishing uh, the book of James in our series through James that Sunday, but we were not able to meet, and then it was Christmas, and I was away in Ukraine. So this week, we're going to be finishing our series in the book of James, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. This is the Word of God. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, I don't know uh, what your last week has been like. Uh, Depending on what your memory is like, you may may not recall that Christmas fell in the middle of the week, and so there's probably lots of busyness for a lot of people. Uh, this Sunday, right smack in the middle of uh, Christmas and New Year's, uh, sort of very, very obviously uh, there are a large number of our folk who are usually here who are other places, and so we want to pray that the Lord will uh, keep them safe where they are. Also, so that this morning they'll be able to worship Him and be drawn close to Him, whatever place they find themselves in. Uh, so we're going to pray. Before I lead us in prayer, I'm going to ask just for everyone to take a moment. You know the circumstances of your week. Uh, you know if you come in today tired or elated, and excited, still working off turkey and sugar, or feeling quite proud of yourself for not overindulging. And so you know if it was a time of blessing with family or a time of difficulty and tension, you you know uh, the times that you've had. So everyone has opportunity, everyone has reason uh, to bow before the Lord individually, just to open their heart to Him, and after a few moments I'll lead us together in prayer. So, our Father in heaven, here we are, a small sampling of your people, not only a small sampling here in this city, but also just the the tiniest fraction of a fraction of your people around the world. And yet, you love and care for us intimately. You are aware of the details of all of our lives. You are aware of those who are in trouble and those who are happy. You are aware of the tension in our hearts and in our minds. You are aware of the distractions. You are aware of our joys and our rejoicings. And Father, we thank you that you are such a a competent God, that you are able to meet us wherever we are, that you're able to take care of us in any way that we need, particularly suited to us. So, Father, we would ask that you would, uh, this morning, by your Spirit, touch our hearts. And, Father, we would ask that you would draw us close to yourself. You know what we each need. Uh, You know where we're coming from. Uh, You know what brings us here today. Uh, You also know something we don't know, and that is where we are going. Uh, We don't know what this afternoon will bring forth or this evening, uh, let alone tomorrow or the day after. And so, Father, help us to trust you, help us to actually walk by faith, help us to learn how to do that, and in small part, help us to do that this morning by opening your word, give us insight into it, Uh, there are things here which may be difficult for us to understand and to absorb, so help us, we pray, to know your mind as revealed in your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now without um, honestly, without attempting to center anyone out, uh, who's ever coughing? do you need a drink? Can someone get you a drink, please? Someone's getting water Okay, good. that should probably just be uh, it's a practical thing to do to help someone so if we can get some water that'd be that'd be a lovely thing to do. Uh, verse thirteen is anyone among you in trouble? well. In a group this size, uh, as down as we may be in numbers falling between Christmas and New Year's, uh, in a group this size, there are probably some people who are in trouble uh, in some way and in some capacity. What's interesting, though, is that uh, this word trouble is the same word that's used in verse 10. Where it says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering. And so our translators bring it across in a slightly different way, but it's the exact same word that James uses to talk about suffering and to talk about persecution. So, if any of you are in trouble or if any of you are suffering, what should you do? Uh, this is something which is, is obviously part and parcel of normal human experience. Uh, Last Sunday, I wasn't here. I was just coming back from uh, Ukraine where I was teaching a worldview class. And uh, one of the things that you see all over the world, although you don't need to leave Guelph to see it, is that there are people who suffer. And there are people who live with suffering continually, day after day. Uh, One of my students in that class Uh, was an army chaplain. And uh, as you probably know, uh, there is a a border war uh, in two provinces in Ukraine uh, with the Russians and the Ukrainians. And he's an army chaplain, so he spends six months sort of uh, away from the front lines on various army bases. And then he goes and spends six months in the war zone. And uh, one the Friday afternoon, the last day I was there, uh, they decided that they were going to take me sightseeing uh, in Poldova, the city where I was, and so we went to some museums and saw some you know, historic Greek Orthodox uh, Russian Orthodox churches. And uh, we're driving around, and this chaplain is our driver, and he's he's driving in a military vehicle. I said, "This is this is really nice that they, they let you borrow this vehicle for these sorts of purposes." And uh, he only spoke Russian, and of course my Russian isn't, it's not perfect just yet, so I prefer to use a translator. And so I was talking uh, with him through the translator, and uh, he says, yeah, the, the, the windows were just recently replaced. Oh, really? Why, why was that? Well, we were, we were having tea. And a sniper shot through the windows. I said, "Oh, that—that that wasn't around here, right? I mean, that—that was—that was somewhere else. Like, we're—we're we're not near the front lines." And you know, and so he reassures me, "No, no, you cowardly Canadians, you are <laughs> quite safe here, you know, where we are." But what do you say when you live in a war zone? Like, what's that experience like? What's it like to actually be in a place where, where people take pot shots at you? And and really, at the end of the day, you're just thankful he's a really bad shot. He, he wasn't trying to hit the windows. And so, you think, what do you do when you're, when you're in trouble? People in war zones suffer. And there are a lot of people around the world who are suffering precisely and only because of their Christian faith. And so what do you do when your heart's breaking and where opposition comes against you in various forms in relentless ways? Well, James says, in those circumstances, you pray. Which is... Maddeningly right and utterly unspecific. Pray for what? He doesn't tell you. How? Do you, do you, do you pray through the lament psalms? Do you do you just pour out your heart to God? Do you, do you just, in some circumstances, recognize that? some things are too definite for words and all you can do is sort of in without verbal expression feel your prayer towards god what do you do do you pray for deliverance do you pray to be taken out of those circumstances do you pray for God's power? Uh, do you pray for spiritual strength? Do you just say, Lord, whatever your will, let that be done? Do you pray for grace? He doesn't tell you. All he says is that when you're suffering, you pray. It may be that God is so understanding of us That he realizes and he understands that when we're suffering, suffering is always unique to the individual. And that's why even if you've gone through similar experiences or analogous experiences, when someone is suffering, you really can never rightly say, I completely understand because you don't ever completely understand what it is like to be that person with their background, with their genetics, with their psyche, with their strength of faith. You, you just never know what it is like to be that person in those circumstances. You, you may have analogies, you may have overlapping experiences, you may have similar experiences, that's fine. But you don't know exactly what they're going through. And so, when you're in trouble, when you're suffering, James says, you pray. You pour out your heart. Because this is the last thing you need when you're suffering is to have a, a boilerplate or a template where you say, this is the only legitimate way to pray to God. So, so even in, in the midst of agony, I'm just going to follow the, the acts acrostic and, and start with adoration and then move to confession and then thanksgiving, then supplication. That, that's a fine heuristic model. It's fine. Uh, but, but God never teaches us to pray that way. Because maybe there are times when God isn't as interested in us doing it right in a religious way. As he, is, as he is interested in us just engaging with him in real life. And so when you're in trouble, you pray. And there's no formula, and there's no right way of expressing it. You just pour out your heart to God. And some days, you will beg for deliverance and exemption Some days you will be more content to globally just allow the will of the Lord to be done. Some days you'll just ask for sustaining grace and and you'll you'll ask for perseverance no matter how hard and no matter how long. Those are not the same thing. No matter how hard and how long the road before you stretches out, whenever you're in trouble, you pray. What about those who are happy? Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. In a group this size, there should be someone happy. And so there should be someone who comes in today singing songs of praise. This is the right response to joy when this is not even circumstantial necessarily this is recognition of the blessings god has poured into your life and so you ought to be happy <laughs> in many ways you you ought to be thankful you ought to rejoice in fact paul will tell us in no uncertain terms to rejoice in the lord how often always. And the amazing thing about that is in case you didn't understand what the word always means, he then says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. He not only tells you, he never only says it again, he tells you he's saying it again. I will say it again. Rejoice. If anyone is happy, let them sing songs of praise. C.S. Lewis very astutely observed that praise is the completion of enjoyment and value. That is, when you recognize who God is and what Jesus Christ has done for you, when you recognize the blessings that you have. You want to ascribe praise and thanksgiving back to God, and you want other people to know how great God is as well. I mean, we could, you could see this um, you know, a number of months ago when the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship. And some of you have forgotten that already because uh, you know we're we're very easily forgetful about these things. But everyone, that's an exaggeration, a lot of people in Toronto and surrounding environments, when the Raptors won the championship, thought that they would be happy for the rest of their lives. And it lasted about a day and a half, at which point all of the media coverage shifted from, we won, we're the best, even people who can't even tie their basketball shoes somehow are taking credit for this national victory. We won. We're the best to this very real Canadian angst. Does Kawhi Leonard still want to live in Toronto? Can we win next year? You know, it was just this whole idea of, of we, we just won. And if you remember when the Raptors started playing in Skydome, you never thought you'd see a playoff run in your lifetime, let alone a championship. And they win, and that's the completion, and everyone's so happy, and then it just just fades away. But in that time, people were proud to wave their Raptors flags and wear their Raptors gear and identify with that team. People wanted the world to know. Toronto wanted the world to know. We're a city of champions. We love the Raptors. We identify with them. Bragging about people completes the experience. In many ways, that's what worship is with God. When you're happy, you, you want to pour out your heart and rejoicing to God, and you want other people to enter into that too. In, in that sense, truthfully, worship is evangelism. Because what we're doing in evangelism, we're telling people the gospel, but we're also trying to make Jesus Christ attractive. We're trying to get people to see the glory and the goodness and the beauty of the Lord. And so when we are able to rejoice, what we're doing is, is what everyone does when they're pleased with anything or anyone. And so we're ascribing praise to God. When you, when you love someone, That experience is not complete. It's not satisfying until they know that you love them. You want them to know it. You want to tell them. You want to show them how much you care, how much you love. And we ought to do that with God. We ought to desire with all of our heart to tell God and to show God how much we love Him. And one of the ways that we do that is we rejoice in Him. And when we rejoice, we sing. We sing songs of praise. Now, verses 14 through 16 represent The third sort of contingent uh, circumstance, is anyone among you sick? So is anyone among you in trouble? Is anyone happy? Is anyone among you sick? This text is hotly debated, uh, has been through all of church history, uh, and is today in special ways because we have the enormous blessing of having the Internet and late-night cable television. So, is anyone among you sick? What ought they to do? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So, first, this is not controversial. This is just what the text says. If you're sick, you are not merely to pray for yourself, and the idea here is that this is a serious sickness. You ought to request that people pray for you, specifically here, the elders. Let them call the elders of the church. They take the initiative to call the elders of the church to come and pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So you also don't, and this is this is church visitation politics, you also don't just wait for the elders to show up so you can criticize them for not showing up until they do. Uh, you call the elders. You know, if you want the elders to come and pray for you, you call them to do that. They come, they pray for you, and they anoint you with oil. Now this is where you hit the first controversy. What do we mean by oil? Well, in the ancient world, uh, oil was often used in uh, anointings, that is, the Messiah was literally the anointed one, so kings, priests could be set aside, uh, marked out specially to be consecrated to the Lord with oil, but oil was also used medicinally, and so when people had wounds or bruised, then often oil would be applied to their bodies. So oil was medicinal. And so some people say, well, well, what's going on here is you're being told that you need to have the elders pray and you need to take your medicine. Right? Be anointed with oil. That's an attractive suggestion in some ways. It is possible, but I don't think that's actually what the text is indicating. Uh, oil was medicinal. Uh, but it wasn't used for every illness. So it's not like the ancient world, all they did was ever prescribe oil in every case. So in that sense, uh, oil would be too specific for people who are just generally ill. But more important is the word anoint, anoint them with oil. Uh, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the word anoint is never used medicinally. In, in, in a medical context, ever. Uh, it is always used, without exception, in terms of consecrating someone to the Lord. So, taking those two things together, uh, it's almost certain that uh, the evidence would fall down on the side of, you call the elders to come and pray for you, they anoint you with oil that is symbolically setting you apart for the Lord, and James also says, which would help with that. Uh, They anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So they are being subsumed categorically under the power and presence and authority of Jesus Christ. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Now this is This is the linchpin of the whole text in terms of verses 14 through 16. The prayer is offered in faith, and the sick person is made well. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. I have done this more than once. Gone with people, elders, leaders, symbolically anointed someone with oil and prayed for them to be healed. And I have never seen anyone healed. So, there are a variety of explanations for that. One would be the cessationist interpretation, which is God used certain miraculous gifts in the apostolic age to establish his church. Now, there's there are sort of... Nibbling qualifications around the edges to all of these, so this is sort of without nuance, but, but you'd say a lot of the sign gifts defined by things like speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, whatever those even were in Corinth, uh, signs of power uh miracles the sorts of things you see in acts those were for the age of the apostles to authenticate the apostles as the authoritative represent- representatives of jesus and so once the canon of scripture is given once the new testament is closed we have the word of god we have everything we need and the divinely authorized uh, plenipotentiaries or apostles are dead The miracles God worked through them established their authority, and so we don't expect to find miracles like that today. That is, all of the sort of biblical data in Acts and Corinthians, this text here, James is an early book uh, in terms of New Testament canon, uh, these sorts of things were true in that day but are no longer true. Now... There are obviously enormous debates about that sort of position, the the gifts, are they continuing, were they for the first century, were they mainly for the first century and intermittently through church history, you know, there are hybrid positions, Uh, there are all sorts of ways of looking at it, Um, it's, it's really convenient and in some ways, it'd be awfully nice for me to say, well, the reason that you know, I, I see this sort of slew of failures in trying to apply this text is that the text just literally doesn't apply today. Now, if I was living 2,000 years ago, I'd be healing people all over the place, but, but not today. That's, that's convenient. If you're a cessationist, then you may just accept that. That's tough, though. It's tough, I think, to be overly dogmatic about cessationism in the first place. It's a strong theological position, but it it requires a theological interpretation of what a lot of texts say. And so now what texts are saying, they're not saying to us because of a theological grid that the text never gives you. So you might be right but uh, it's pretty hard to establish that biblically at least exegetically another interpretation for which we for which we owe a lot of of damage to in the world today both in the church and outside of the church is sort of the the faith healer interpretation the sort of thing you you get on you know, late night, you know, obscurely numbered you know, cable television stations, internet. The reason that people aren't healed is that someone just lacks faith. Now this is very convenient too because it's not testable. Every time we don't see this, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Every time you're not delivered from sickness, is because you didn't trust the Lord. Christ has already provided healing in the atonement. After all, doesn't it say that he picked up our diseases? And so he's already pa- he's paid for our sin. He's paid for our sickness. All of that is, comes to you through the atonement of Christ on the cross. And so if you do not access that, it's because you have failed in faith. Everyone can be healed if they just trust God enough. And to show that you trust God, just, not the point, of course, but off to the side, if you really trust God, you'll also send the biggest check you can to my ministry. That's how you prove it. That's how you demonstrate it. Well, what do you do with that? Some weeks where I'm having trouble paying my bills, I might just try that once or twice just to see. But, but what do you do with that? It's, it's your fault if you don't have enough faith. We'll just hold on to that for a moment. The one that many of us default to in these circles, I suspect, is the Lord-willing interpretation Lord, we know you can heal this person, but you know what's best, and so we will trust you to do what is right. We ask you to heal them, if it be your will, older generation, if it be thy will. And then we just move on with life. Now, I think that this is entirely legitimate to a point It ceases to be legitimate if the Lord has given special revelation that says, if you pray in faith, the person will be made well. That is, he's already revealed his will. This may apply to me and me only, and I'll accept it if it does. There are an awful lot of times when I pray that God will do something if it is his will because I don't have the faith Faintest expectation he will actually do anything at all that I'm asking for. And so, if it is your will, is the great cover for my lack of faith? Does it have to be? No, not at all. And I'm not even remotely suggesting that any of us who pray, any of you who prays that way, that that's what you're doing. But it is Awfully easy and awfully tempting to say, if it is your will, merely because we actually don't have faith that God's going to do what we ask. So, if it is the Lord's will, the person will be made right. God can do it, but we'll trust Him to do what's best. That's legitimate, but it can also be a dodge. Another way of looking at this is what I would call uh, sort of the confirmation bias approach. And you get this, I think, amongst people who have extensive prayer lists or amongst circles where they do prayer services and healing, healing services all the time. Uh, this summer, uh, there's, there's this uh, dear little girl, uh, she's just a young teenager now, uh, who I've known ever since she was just under one year old, and, and I love her very, very much, and she's very sick. And uh, I was uh, speaking at a conference this last summer, and her and her family were there. And there were a lot of Charismatics there. And so they, the charismatic said, we are going to have a, a prayer service, a healing service for this girl. They want me to participate in it. I said, great. So we go, and, and, and people are naming, they're, they're claiming these healings, they're commanding these healings, basically saying, you know, you're already healed and we're just trusting that God's going to do this because he's putting your cells back together properly even now. And and before this, you know, they read a slew of Scripture claiming all of these healing promises for health and all the rest. You know, and one comes from Psalm 73. Their bodies are healthy and strong. And, you know, I'm not trying to dampen the mood, but but, I, but I'm there thinking, my goodness, Psalm 73 starts out, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's your thesis. God is good to Israel. God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, the whole rush of the Psalm until the end is just, it's his litany of complaints as he looks around the world and he sees that it's the righteous who are suffering And it's the ungodly who seem to have everything going their way. Their bodies are healthy and strong, is the psalmist's complaint when he sees the wicked. That is not a verse that promises you you can be healthy and strong in body if you just believe hard enough. And what does believe hard enough even mean? You sort of tighten up your stomach muscles and, and clench your fists and you just believe. You can't, you can't generate that anyway. And, and so, so the confirmation bias becomes no matter how many times we do this and it doesn't work, we remember the one time someone got healed. And then that's the one thing we remember. So so in those extensive prayer lists, all of the people who didn't get healed, we forget because there was the one time when someone was, and so we know prayer works because of that. All right. But that doesn't fall outside probably of statistical probability. You can't just forget all the times the healing services don't work. Well, lastly... There's the eschatological interpretation. And this is that healing will come for sure. Will. Just maybe not now. Maybe not in this world. Maybe not the way we want when we see people who are sick. Maybe not the way we want when we see people who are dying and who die. But the Lord will raise them up. They will be made well. Now, I suspect this text is talking more temporally than that. And yet, at the end of the day, theologically, even if it's not the exegetically sound conclusion, ultimately from this exact passage, that is true theologically, at least. Because here's the thing: and I'm not sure if you've noticed this. I'm not sure if the faith healers have noticed this. Everyone dies, and and so you you can pray all you want for healing, and there are just there's just going to come a time when the Lord has numbered someone's days and that number comes up and no amount of prayer in the world and no amount of faith or desire in the world is going to change it. And for those who are in Jesus, that's the day. That's the day when they are made well. Everyone who is healed in this world is healed to get sick again. Everyone who is who is raised up to health in this world will eventually die. James is not here. Paul is not here. There, there's a reason why. You must not think that people didn't pray for the apostles. That people didn't pray for those from the early church. But this meant that there must have been all kinds of times when even in James's day, the elders were called to pray for someone and that person wasn't healed. Forget cessationism. That's just reality. The Lord has given us a lifespan. And it will not endure. It will not continue forever. It just won't. And and so there has to be to be some kind of uh, combinatory way of looking at this text. Where where should we believe? And maybe maybe partly is just a failure of faith. But do we actually really believe that God can heal? That He will heal? Maybe if we believe that more, we actually would see more healing. Maybe we would. I remember Richard Foster once saying that um, if he got to a point where he said, you know, praying about the Lord's will, he said, you know, I got to a point where I just decided if I was going to be guilty of sinning against God, I was going to be be guilty of believing he was going to do too much, not too little. Maybe Maybe we're scared of faith. You know, faith is hard. Faith is tough. It is honestly, it is frightening to say, I'm going to commit everything to God come what may. And and so we protect ourselves by holding back. We we shield ourselves by not getting our hopes up too high. We learn to protect ourselves. We learn to, to hunker down and because because we're all religious, we learn to protect ourselves through, li- through re- religious slogans, theological bumper stickers, if it's the Lord's will. Maybe we should see more people healed. But we also do have to hold to the Lord's will. Jesus makes this perfectly evident when he teaches us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. You you pray about God and his kingdom and his will before you start talking about yourself at all. And Jesus in Gethsemane, if there is any way, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Or Paul, begging God, please take this away. We don't know exactly what the this was, this thorn in the flesh. And he says, I prayed three times. You know, I, I'm not convinced that that's actually numerical, that he only prayed three times. I, I think that's sort of like the numbers of three and seven. That's, as he, he, he prayed a, a complete number of times. He was in earnest about this. He, it, it was his entreaty before God, please take this suffering away. And the Lord said, no. My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. That's hard. And so we submit ourselves to the will of God. That's how we're taught how to pray before we get to something very specific like this. The general principles uphold the specifics. And then yes, eschatologically, There will come a day of perfect healing and resurrection power. Your body will be healed in resurrection glory. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So some people want to say this person is sick because they've sinned. But James has it as a contingency. If they have sinned. In other words, there is some sickness related to sin. And there is some sickness that is not related specifically to sin, or not related to specific sin, rather. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, this is more general. This is not just the elders. This is confess your sin, pray for each other so that you may experience healing. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then James (coughs) does something which is utterly preposterous unless it's true he says you know the prayer of a righteous person is is powerful and effective i mean who can we think of who's just like a regular person i know elijah you know, what, are you t- James, what are you talking about? You know, Elijah is not a regular person. Have you have you forgotten this the flannel graphs in your Sunday school class? Like, he was not a regular person at all. You know, you remember how he was dressed, sort of pr- prophetic prototype of John the Baptist. Do you remember Mount Carmel? Do you remember that? Do you remember the ravens and the brook? Don't you remember the stories? He was not a regular person at all. He prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He was not a normal person. James's point is this: Yes, he was. That's why it was miraculous. It wasn't that he was some kind of superstar. He was a regular person. He was a righteous person. This is one of the things we you know we need to get we need to get rid of these flannel graphs maybe or or bring them back because actually would be pretty cool in a lot of ways. We have this whole we've made the Bible this this mythological realm of of mysticism and magic where everyone's two dimensional. And James is saying he wasn't two dimensional. He's just a real person. He he was afraid. He got discouraged. He got depressed. He was suicidal. Lord, take my life. That was a prayer. Lord, take my life. What did God do through this very, very regular, normal person? He infused him with power from his spirit. And this regular, normal person did incredible things. Not because he was an incredible person, but because he was a regular servant of an incredible God. And James says, you want to pray, you remember, a regular man like Elijah? You pray and the the God of Elijah is your God too. He can do more than you can ask or imagine. He can do more than you can think. And this is where you're supposed to remember the flow of the argument. If anyone is in in trouble, let them pray. Because the prayer of regular people who know a great God is an awesome and powerful thing. Powerful and effective. So powerful that it can even avail to turn someone who wanders from the truth back. If any of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. How do you bring that person back? Through your your own winsomeness, through your own wit and wisdom. No, it's, it's through asking God for a power in the Spirit to be able to witness to someone, to be able to counsel someone, to be able to draw someone back to God. And so we witness and we share and we talk and we pray. And if you bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What's the issue in verses 14 and 15? It, it, it's physical healing. What's the issue here? It, it's, it's spiritual life or death. James says, listen, start praying and start telling people about the gospel. Start bringing them back to God. If you do that, you will save them from death. Not not." bodily death, not physical death, not temporarily. It's not a reprieve like Hezekiah gets 15 more years. It's not a reprieve. It's eternal life. That's what they get. And all of those sins, past sins covered by the blood of Christ, present and future sins covered by the blood of Christ, but not only that, not only are these sins covered through the blood of Christ, but if you turn someone away from sin, then, then a lot of those sins that were potential, dissipate. That is, they're never actualized. They never come to be. Because they're following God. Because they're following Jesus. Not sinlessly, not perfectly, no. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways saves them from death and covers over a multitude of sins. may God help us. That's a big text. If you feel somewhat dissatisfied with my handling and treatment of verses 14, 15, and 16, I have good news and bad news for you. And that good news and bad news is the same. We're in the same boat. You know, it's amazing to me that that we all say, you know, there are passages in the Bible I'm not sure I fully understand. And pastors are allowed to say that generally, but then always have to have an answer for every specific text. This is one example where I'm just not quite sure. Sure. I can worry around the edges of it. I think I know maybe what it's not saying a little bit. But exactly? I don't know. And so that means that for you, you have some homework, not advising you to do research on YouTube about this, but you go home and you pray. (laughs) And you compare scripture with scripture. What does this mean for us today? And you wrestle with it. And you wrestle with God. And your other bit of homework is this. Okay, really, if you're in trouble, go home and pray. If you're really in trouble, pray before you go home. If you're happy, sing. Rejoice. Tell someone else. Let them share in your rejoicing. And if anyone's sick, call the elders. We'll do our best. We'll pray for you. We'll love you. We'll trust God. We'll try to learn to walk by faith. It's tough. And if any of you are walking away, come back. Come back. Come back to the shepherd of your soul. Come back to the one who can cover all of your sin. Come back to the one who can save you from death. Come back to the one who can give you eternal life. Come back to Jesus. And if you say, well, I can't come back to him because I've never been to him in the first place, then come for the first time. Pray, ask Jesus to work in your life, to cleanse you from your sin, to cover it over, to save you from death, and to give you eternal life. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.